0: Welcome back to another episode of South Asian Studies on the New Books Network. I am your host, Madhuri, and today we are speaking with Professor Sarita Amrute about her book, Encoding Race, Encoding Class, Indian IT Workers in Berlin, published by Duke University Press in 2016. The book just won the Diana Forsyth Prize at the annual American Anthropological Association meetings in Washington, DC. The Forsyth Prize was created in 1998 to celebrate the best book in the spirit of Forsyth's feminist anthropological research on work, science, and technology. Big congratulations, Professor Amrute, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Madhuri.
1: It's my pleasure to be here. And that was quite an introduction.
0: We're really excited to have you on the show. So, I just want to begin by asking you a little bit about how you came to be an anthropologist and what drew you to this research on Indian IT workers in Germany.
1: Thank you. Yeah, you know, I think this is a here listeners might find this an interesting story. I actually came to anthropology through the visual which i think is a fairly unusual track so i i in a younger life as many of us are was was an artist and then i studied art history the history of painting and i remember in my classes feeling quite uneasy with the fact that the paintings were by and large treated as separate works of art with very little relationship to the worlds that produce them. Of course, all of this has changed now. But when I was studying, that was pretty much the mode. And in one of my classes, we happened to read a book. It was called The Dark Side of the Landscape. And what it was about was, it was about the Industrial Revolution in England. And the book's thesis was, the poor were actually painted out of these pictures of the landscape at the same moment that they were being employed in factories. So when you have workers being employed in factories, you have landscape painting, which is very romantic, very idyllic. And so really based on books like that, I started thinking a little bit more about the social sciences and anthropology in particular as being the discipline that could really show social relations in all of their complexity. Um, And that's really what drew me to the field. And So, I think for those of you who have looked at the book at all, you can see the strong presence of the visual in some of the chapters. So, for instance, um, in my chapter about German Orientalism, I try to go through lots of political cartoons in which the Indian IT worker figures as, um, in many different ways, as the Person who'll take your job as the automaton who'll fix all your problems as a snake charmer—you know—all the tropes are there, and I try to show how how these tropes have this very long history um, in the German experience of India in particular, which was different, right, from the Euro, from the English or North the American, right, Euro American, right. So this is this is where my anthropological roots lie. I come through it. Through a consideration of how images actually help us think concretely about the world around us. And that's both enabling and, and problematic. And for this this particular project, you know, it was sort of a similar thing that I noticed when Germany released this short-term migration scheme, which they called the German Green Card, of course, although of course it had no permanent residency attached to it. It was a three to five year visa program for IT workers, for software engineers. When they introduced this scheme almost immediately in the German public sphere, it was attached to India and Indians. So one of the sort of right centrist politicians came up with the slogan Kinderstadt Inder, which literally Mm -hmm. translates to kids instead of Indians. The idea was that German mothers needed to have more children who could then be software engineers rather than admitting Indians to the country. Um, and there were again, lots of political cartoons about that. So this is another one of those instances where a, a huge and complicated political debate over technology and migration got crystallized in a particular kind of figure, stereotyped figure that then needed to be portrayed visually. And that's really how I got into the project. I mean, it's one of these moments where because of my background in in art history, I had German language training. Uh, My interests were about technology and South Asia. And then these series of events happened. And suddenly there, I had a dissertation project, which, you know, it's always a combination of planning forethought and serendipity.
0: Right, right. So, the first time you did fieldwork in Berlin, it was as a pilot or you had already been in Germany before that? I had already
1: been there um, between finishing my undergraduate degree and starting my PhD program. I was there on a Fulbright um, fellowship. So I was fairly familiar with Berlin and its interesting scene and the way it it. It had both a a love-hate relationship with migrants, as does all of Germany. Um, So I had already had my toes in the water a little bit, as it were.
0: Great. And let's explicitly turn to the book now. You begin with this uh, very evocative account of a disappearance Will you share that ethnographic incident with our yeah. listeners and how it, you know, really embodies all these questions that you're grappling with in the book about race and class and work and, right? Yeah,
1: yeah absolutely. Well, you know, anyone who knows me knows I love a good mystery. Um, I'm a great, <laughs> a great reader and, frankly, consumer of all media, uh, of mystery stories. So uh, when I was going through my fieldwork data. And of course, fieldwork continues. So for those of you who aren't anthropologists, I think sometimes we imagine that we go and do fieldwork, we come back and it's over. But there's an afterlife to fieldwork. Many of us make return visits. Nowadays, many of the people whom we work with, we're talking to over WhatsApp or Facebook or whatever it is. So there, it continues on. And so in the afterlife of my fieldwork experience, I learned that one of my main interlocutors had actually been leading a sort of double life for most of the time that I was there. And I was in- incredibly shocked. So, so her name in the book is Meenakshi, and everyone's name is a pseudonym. Um, and she came to Berlin on one of these short-term visas. She was employed for a while, for about Six months. And then she she lost her job because the project that she was working on ended. She may have been employed for a year. And then after that, rather than, you know, tell anyone and she had a big circle of friends, you know, other software engineers from India. Um, I was part of that circle as the anthropologist. Rather than tell anyone what had happened, she she pretended to go to work every day. And then she would circle back around to her apartment and, uh, and do job searches. Um, and this went on. And finally, she was unable to find anything else. And she was extradited. She was threatened that she would be forcibly removed from the country if she didn't leave. And then it was only at that moment that anyone realized what had been going on. And so for me, this, the mystery of Meenakshi's disappearance really sets the stage for all of my concerns in the book. So, of course, on one level, I think we probably all know stories or or we have our own stories of not telling our parents, you know, what's going on because they might be worried or making phone calls back home and ensuring everybody is okay. But for me, Minakshi's story was particularly heartbreaking because she didn't inform the very people who could have helped her, right? So all of these other software engineers working at companies around Berlin who might have made the proper introduction um, to help her get another job, she didn't inform them either, and so, for me, Minakshi's story is really a story in which we can see the kind of contradictions that software engineers live under, the kinds of work pressure that they live under, but also the pressure that they have within their own social circles to be successful and to perform that success at all times. And I think, for me, also, especially as a woman, right, a big, a big thing, a big theme in the book is that. These sorts of pressures actually work themselves out very differently on differently situated bodies. So um, as a woman, she was very, very concerned with holding on a certain kind of respectability to a certain kind of respectability um, that allowed her to stay in diaspora as a single woman um, and pursue her own Goals rather than being told as she was with with some regularity by by people at home that she needed to go back and get married and do all those sorts of things.
0: And so the job in Berlin was really a lifeline to continue to being independent and perhaps go back with greater um, capital,
1: really? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, so her plan was always to amass enough capital, really, um, and enough experience abroad, so that when she she did return home, she could um, she could get a job and get married on her own terms and all those sorts of things. And in order to maintain that, she felt that she needed to to just simply continue to perform success. Right. The the idea that she could admit defeat in this global industry that's supposed to secure her place in the middle class was, was out of bounds for her. And in fact, her, you know, in, in a certain way, um, that thesis of hers bore up because when I talked to her friends about what had happened, they were very quick to shun her. They didn't really have very, very much sympathy with, with what had happened. Um and 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 the other thing that to me is interesting about Meenakshi and this is giving away this is a little bit of a spoiler alert giving away how I resolve the mystery at the end is that sh- even though she has all sorts of communicative apparatus open to her, of course, she she shuns them all. She just detaches herself from this group um, and goes her own way. And so there's no way to really know the end of Meenakshi's story, which is the other reason I find I find it so fascinating. It, it allows us this really open-ended take on what the ultimate significance of the software industry is. Is she kind of divorced herself from its pressures and demands? And part of me likes to imagine that she's living again uh, independently in her own terms without feeling these pressures of the success that the industry demands of her. Of course, there's a much darker reading. And some of the people who have read this book have sort of pushed me on on why I hold on to the light reading, that, that she is actually a symbol of failure. But I don't think that's really adequate um, to her story, because she was a very interesting character. And she always made decisions on her own terms. And in some ways, I think her decision not to come back into this group, this transnational group of coders, um, actually represents something about our ability in general to move outside of the demands that high-tech work makes on all of
0: us. Right. And in the conclusion section, particularly, you use this partiality of ethnographic knowledge, this lack of closure, right, that you experience with this uh, particular incident so productively, I thought. And that brings me to, you know, asking you more about your methodology, because in some ways, you were able to think beyond the binary of success or failure, because you were privy to these workers beyond them as being just workers, right? You were continuously trying to bridge that space between work and leisure. So what informed your decision to pursue your interlocutors as not just workers?
1: Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. You know, I think, there's many ways to answer this question, and so i I'd, I'd like to begin with perhaps the most specific and the most pragmatic, and then move to the most abstract so in the most specific and pragmatic terms, corporate tech worlds are notoriously difficult to study right they're more difficult to study than govern government worlds they're more difficult to study than illicit worlds, and this is because for two reasons tech companies are proprietary. And so they're very leery of having outside observers in their offices. And then the second reason, of course, has to do with the ideology of tech itself, that it presents itself as a self-contained thing in the world that's there to solve problems. And so therefore it presents itself already as neutral and it presents itself as something that's going to do work rather than something that's meant to be studied. And for those two reasons in my field work, my ability to really deeply sit in and do that anthropological thing where we sort of hang out and observe for days and, and months, years on end, the ins and outs of a place was constrained by my ability to get past the, the gatekeepers in tech offices. So I was very much able to go into places for a day, a week, two weeks, intermittently for a few days every month for several months. But no one was going to let me just sit around um, in the tech offices and hang out. And and. Also, I should say a corollary to that is for my interlocutors who were there on short-term visas whose jobs were project dependent, I really wanted to respect their fear that um, if they were seen sort of wasting time with an ethnographer or if they were seen to bring somebody into the firm who was maybe going to be critical of the firm, their jobs could be in jeopardy. So given all of those pragmatic daily constraints of fieldwork, I initially, in a sense of frustration, told myself, look, you know, you better just hang out with the people who are who are on these short term visas whenever and wherever you can. And um, something that really made that possible in a sense is the way that they saw me as occupying a similar life stage to themselves, right? We were all in our mid-20s. I was in my late 20s. We were all in Germany temporarily, and we were all there in some way related to education or work or becoming middle class. We we were all kind of on the cusp of getting married. So sociologically, um, we aligned very well, and they could kind of understand my presence um, as both an ethnographer and as someone who's occupying a similar position to them. Um, and so through you know hanging out, interviewing, observing um, people when they went about their weekend business or after work business and participating in, in events like going to parks, I realized that there's this whole other life to the software engineer that almost never gets depicted in in either fictional accounts, in humorous accounts, in social science accounts, and statistical accounts of who they are and what they do. And this became extremely important to me theoretically because I realized something that was was really shocking and surprising, which is even though in public, um, Indian software engineers are depicted as... Almost automaton, you know, tech savvy math geniuses who can sit and work forever, right? With 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 no other bodily needs. Um, most of the people I was speaking to really did not love their technologies in the way that, from the outside, they are always depicted as as doing. In fact these were jobs. These were jobs for them. And um, in their spare time, they weren't hacking, you know, they weren't writing code. They weren't using Python. They weren't doing any of those things that we think they should be doing. Instead, they were out and about enjoying parks, going out to dinner, commiserating with each other, talking about how to deal with the obscure demands of the project managers. Um, And that allowed me to think about All the ways in which, despite the fact that they were seated at the heart of a tech industry, they were actually pursuing an anti-work politics. And by that, I mean a politics that refused the colonization of life by work that we see happening through all of our digital technologies. So they, you know, unlike us, they'd shut their laptops They'd make fun of each other for always being on their cell phones. Um, and to me, that was extremely interesting and also extremely heartening because it showed me a way of inhabiting technological worlds, but bending those worlds to different ends. Um, and I should also say, for since this is a podcast about South Asia, and all of you are probably thinking a little bit angrily now, but but... This lady is ignoring caste. this lady is ignoring ignoring class, religion. Um, of course, all of their leisure practices are completely about building a largely Hindu, definitely middle and upper class upper caste imaginary of what a good life would be. So there's a really good reason why they are hanging out in parks all the time. And they expressed it very clearly when they said, you know, we we can't do this in India. Why? Because the parks in India are full of squatters and they're dirty and so on. So in some ways, you know, everything in my book is in a certain way compromised. There are no pure utopias. There's not a pure tech utopia. There's not a pure anti-tech utopia. There isn't a utopian imaginary of multiculturalism that holds water. In, In fact, it's used to reinforce hierarchies. There's also not a a utopia of enjoyment or pleasure. That too is part of the production of, of caste and class hierarchies in South Asia and the diaspora?
0: Absolutely. And since you were, you know, running through the different axes of identity, I was curious about this while reading the book. How did your interlocutors perceive you as you know an American Indian graduate student who perhaps had greater freedom across borders that they often didn't. And how did you, did was that ever a point of conversation? Because at one point you talk about how this one worker hides from his friends that he already has this American visa set up for, you know, a possibility where he might be, Uh, done with his German stint, and then would have to move to a body shop in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: You know, this was one of the funnest part of my research, actually, the way I was often turned into the subject of their ethnographies. So it, it was pretty great. So I was often asked to answer questions that seemed kind of obscure, like, the different building materials for houses in Germany versus the United States. And at other times, were very pointed, like, what are the chances that I can get a visa for Canada, right? Um, and some of them I could answer, some of them I couldn't, some of them I tried to do a little digging on. But the whole point of that exercise, from their perspective, was to try to make calculations about what to do next. Because they were all on these really short term, right, no longer than five years visa. And so in order to stay successful, they were going to to go somewhere else. And of all the people I talked to, about two dozen people, only two of them stayed in Germany. The others went back to India. Some went to Canada, to England, Australia, some in the U.S., um, but, but only two stayed in Germany. So there's this way in which I became an informant for them, a native informant about what life in the U.S. could be. Um, And their concerns ranged from being able to get jobs, which they were all fairly sure they they could. Um, And I think this is maybe one of the moments in which they are being perhaps a little bit short-sighted, actually. Um, and that's another thing that I think Minakshi's story does for me, to open up the actual risks that they're taking in moving through these short-term jobs. Um, but they also were questions about, you know, what is it like to be an Indian, uh, if we could put it in, in those terms, in a place that's not India. Um, and so the, there's a lot of questions about assimilation. So so one of the things that they would often say is, well, you know, Germany may not have the best record on, on its treatment of foreigners, but they sort of leave you alone here. Whereas for my friends who are in the U.S., and of course, I'm not their only informant, right? I, they have these big networks. They they all have cousins and friends and so on who are already in the U.S. They have to assimilate. They have to, you know, wear their shoes in the house and all these other things that that seem, you know, quite ridiculous. Um, and, and so I spent. They were often surprised that I knew to take my shoes off. For instance, to stay with that example. Uh, when I go in somewhere. And of course, in my house, we always took our shoes off. So there were a lot of really good and funny conversations about those sorts of differences. Um, But it it is all, you know, really, as Stuart Hall says, these are all the moments and the ways in which different regimes of power and difference articulate together. And they articulate together in the everyday, right? They articulate together in the worlds of, of dress and habit and food and Visa regimes—they all come together in those instances.
0: I mean, this is the perfect uh, moment to, I think, segue into the first section of your book, which is called "Encoding Race." And you know, before we talk more about how you think Indian workers are racialized uh, in contradiction to, say, Turkish guest workers or the Afro-German migrants. I want to pause first and ask you more about your choice of race as an entry point and not, you know, ethnicity, culture. And you write about this in the book. So will you talk a little more about that?
1: Yeah, thank you. You know, it was really important for me to use the lens of racialization in my analysis for, for two reasons. One, because the processes that I was seeing really were racialized in the way that Franz Fanon talks about it, in the way that difference gets epidermalized in his terms. It becomes part of the skin uh, of a person. And so in my book, I very carefully track the way that being Indian um, became associated with the way one, one looked, not only with what one ate, we could think of as, as ethnicity or how one spoke, but actually the fact that if you looked like an Indian, then you would, by necessity, genetically have a certain disposition. And that disposition was towards abstraction, asceticism, being able to work long hours, not caring about material things, um, being good at math, for instance. And then the cultural aspects were kind of um, add-ons. There were things that a German public could consume and which made that biologically different worker Palatable, literally quite palatable, um, to a white European public. Um, and so, of course, all of these biological traits that I mentioned, be, from being good at math and not caring to not caring about material things, are coded ways to talk about a cheapened labor force, right? A labor force who could be deployed in the IT industry at lower rates uh, of pay and without benefits that because they're short-term workers. And you can see this not only in Germany, but across the industry to the United States and elsewhere, where outsourcing really is a way of cheapening labor. And then the whole thing gets undergirded, right? As necessarily supplemented from beneath, right? If we think with Derrida or Gayatri Spivak, by race as as the technology that, mediates and supports that kind of cheapening of labor. So that's one reason I I really wanted to think through race, because that's what I I was observing. The other reason is is really about the tech industry and digital technologies, which less and less, but still claim a kind of neutrality vis-a-vis the social world. And part of the point of my work in general is to suggest that no, actually in the very development of the technologies themselves, we can read a story of race and of gender um, that works through these technologies and, and is commonplace within them. And I think really the last year has shown that over and over again from the James Donovan manifesto at Google um, all all the way through the recent revelations about Facebook and the way that it um, that it allowed for, for marketing of political candidates to different communities based on their race, right? Um, so it's hard baked into the technologies themselves. And this is, if, if you do want to say what's the point of studying this research, it, it might be that. It might be to say technologies that we think of as neutral are anything but. They have heartbaked within them through their development, certain assumptions about difference um, that then get perpetuated in the name of neutrality itself. Um, so that's why I wanted I, I was I was so interested in thinking through and I think race really is the right lens for the kinds of processes I'm talking about. And then Madhuri, as you're saying, it allows us to draw the comparison with other kinds of groups that are also racialized. So in Germany, that might be Turkish guest, guest workers um, and Afro-Germans in the United States. We might think about other communities, Latino communities and African-American communities and how all these different kinds of racializations actually work to make. Um, to perpetuate a sense of distinctness among communities that actually have a lot, quite a lot in common.
0: And yet you don't just stop there, right? And that's what's so fascinating about the book, because you could have just ended with, here, look at this abject, racialized labor force of IT workers in Germany but you don't you take us to this double location of IT workers where they are on one hand this racialized unwanted migrant right and yet they're also techno elites in uh, India and just want to read out a little bit from your introduction where I thought the way you articulated it was uh, really fruitful for me you say the disjuncture between Indian class politics and the politics of race and knowledge work globally is not between race and class as opposing categories of belonging, but between racialization as a means of dividing up workers and also a sign of value and the establishment of the Indian IT workers' authoritative voice within the Indian middle classes, right? And I think that putting together is what's so productive in your book for me so
1: yeah thank you you know I I, exactly I think again thinking with Stuart Hall race and class are not opposing categories class is always manifested through racial racializations and vice versa racialization manifests itself through class affiliations And so, especially for diasporic folks, for people who move in and out of India, they're always kind of carrying with them the the experiences back and forth across the divide. And in each site, there's different ways in which they're disciplined into a particular Position so um, in India a lot of some of my book does take place in India. There's one chapter where where I go back and and do some research, and there of course um, the question is always creating the appropriate translations between one's experience in. Europe or the United States, and the experience one has in India or the experience with one one's family expects you to bring back with you to India. Um, and I think returning again to Meenakshi's story, we can really begin to understand why she just disappeared, right? Um, because of the way that she wanted to present this authoritative voice of middle-classness and the way in which her job in Germany It was the thing that was going to enable her to do that, but was also the thing that made that process so difficult. And so I think if if we think about the politics of the middle class in India today, I think one of the thinkers that I find most profound on this question is Satish Deshpande, where he shows that the, the middle class or the upper middle class is actually claiming a kind of high caste, high class status based on the absence of caste. So they're claiming it in the absence of those markers of caste that were generationally profound and important. And so therefore caste remains as a residue for lower caste subjects. Um, And I think if you add this transnational element, you can see what, what are the tools that they use to do that part of the tools that they're using to do that is precisely uh, the tools of uh, transnational management culture, right? Um, That there's a kind of standard middle-class nest that's, placeless, um, that draws on all placeless and you can embody that and perform that in the way that you dress, the fact that you eat Thai food and all of these different cuisines that you're no longer a vegetarian, for instance, this is a big one, um, big one, huge one that does very little to unseat caste relations, but it creates upper and middle-class culture as caste-less. And that's where they're drawing on these regimes of transnational tech culture or transnational corporate culture to make that, to produce that authoritative voice.
0: And I mean, yet all of this is, you know, fundamentally underwritten by a precariousness of work, right, That which pushes back Menakshi into that sort of gray area from which you know, we cannot recover her voice, so to speak. So, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, yeah, and I think I think you can see this in U.S. politics right now, very much so. Um,
0: the precariousness, the, precarious,
1: the precariousness of it, right? That at, at the end of the day, the these um, programming jobs are backed by corporations, who in turn are backed by visual regimes. And the more the visa regimes become precarious or seem to become precarious, the more the corporations will invest in something other than labor recruitment. So, for instance, most of the big IT firms are pushing AI. They've they've sort of increased their R&D monies for AI, partly because they see labor markets as so precarious.
0: Right. And... I had a question uh, about you know visa categories because while reading the book I was simultaneously wondering if the exact equivalent in the American system for the German green card holders would be the H1B is that correct? And I've seen you know in popular literature folks making this distinction between, say, software engineers who came to the U.S. in the 80s and then software engineers who are still coming into Silicon Valley now, arguing that earlier this was a crop of innovators who were creative, who were not just coding for 18 hours. And that what you see now is more like the tech equivalent of a sweatshop. What do you have to say to that? Because in some places you talk about, you know, how tech is the grunt work that Indian workers will do at the back of the room. And then there's the front row reserved for the innovators. Yeah.
1: So, so this is what I have to say to that. On the one hand, that kind of rhetoric, I feel, is just another way to create and mark a hierarchy in which, you know, now we're getting to FOB versus ABCD territory, right? So how, who's going to call the, the folks who are just coming in now grunts who are uncreative? Well, okay, people who have been here for a long time and have their own concerns about assimilation and fears about what it means to be Indian in, in Trump's America. Um, and so that that to me sort of makes me upset and angry because I feel that it's one more tool by which those who are who have made it in a sense can can we talk to close doors yeah, yeah. close doors to those who haven 't quite made it yet um, the other thing I want to say about that is that I would say that most people working in tech. Um, are doing some kind of grunt-like labor, right? So um, I think much of our attention, especially from India or within India, focuses on the superstars, the Nandan Nilekanis and, you know, whomever us, Vinod Khoslas, but most people are not them, right? So mm-hmm. So as an anthropologist, I want to understand something about how the majority of white-collar workers work today. And I would think regardless of where they're from, most of us are doing something that's rather repetitive uh, and mostly boring. And must, much of the energy of tech firms is in keeping those workers motivated through a combination of leisure activities and um, the fear of replacement. So that's something that kind of recurs fractally all the way down. It will go all the way down to the person operating the flex in the Amazon warehouse,
0: right? Because you know, at the other end of the spectrum, there is this uh, faddish tendency in the social sciences too to talk about the emancipatory potential of technology itself. You know, Twitter created Arab Spring, for example, to give a slightly facetious example, but you know, you, I think, talk um, sort of carefully about how technology is not just about making a new world or feeling disaffected and disenchanted with the new one, but rather that it should be a lens that should initiate reflection on the human condition at large. So do you want to maybe conclude... Our section on your book with uh, just uh, a few thoughts on how technology is being studied, both within anthropology and in other disciplines?
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, You know, the study of technology is extremely exciting, and there's a wealth of things that have been studied, are being studied, and and need to be studied. And uh, I think Ultimately, what I'm working on is really about corporate technology work. So I see my work really in a long lineage of anthropologists who draw on Marx um, and people like E.P. Thompson to think about the everyday lived reality of, of um production. Right. Uh, and so there, for me, really, it's, it's going back to Marx's writing on technology is really key in which he writes, he, he does write about the emancipatory possibility of technology. But then, of course, he tells us that that emancipatory potentiality has been reinvested, as it were, into a certain kind of productive apparatus. And if we we want our technology to be emancipatory, then it has to be detached from the apparatus of capital. And so to me, then, the areas that open up to study technology's emancipatory potentiality would be, on the one hand, what we could think of as recoding or or pirating technologies. So I'm thinking here of Gabriella Coleman's work mm-hmm. on, on hacking, hacking. or. Yeah, or even earlier, Ravi Sundaram's work on pirate modernities in South Asia. Um, and then, on the other hand, I really think one something one thing that's very very fascinating right now is the question of labor. So, how does our labor get mobilized, and how can technologies actually enable a different kind of organization of labor? So, here I'm thinking about um, attempts to unionize what they what they call wall to wall within tech firms? What would it look like? What would it, what would be required for within any tech firm, Infosys, Amazon, whatever, to have a union that's capacious enough to include software engineers and call center drivers or software engineers and the caterers, you know, supplying the food to the workers? How could we imagine that as a kind of emancipatory potential of technology?
0: Right. And I imagine then we'd have to, you know, think even uh, more critically about conditions of work, but also status aspirations that undergo the work itself, right? And whether people want to imagine themselves as certain kinds of workers as opposed to others. And I think that's why the way you sort of bring in the middle class aspect of tech workers abroad along with how they are racialized. It's just uh, such a productive space for me to put precisely those tensions into conversation so yeah and speaking of the work that needs to be done, what are you working on these days?
1: (laughs) Yes. um, So I'm working on a new book, which is really at the beginning stages of analysis that I'm calling Prank Politics. And what I want to do in this book is work back and forth between the U.S. and and India. So right now I'm situated in Seattle. And uh, for the Seattle portion of the book, I'm tracing... um, hate crimes and hate incidences against South Asians in this area. And I am trying to understand what the community's reaction to them has been and how those incidences map onto their position as well-to-do tech workers who are displacing other kinds of workers in the area. And then uh, for the India part of the project, I want to try to do some work on the use of technologies and their relationship to real-life rage. So I'm thinking in particular about doing some work on WhatsApp and the circulation of rumors on WhatsApp um, and how they lead to uh, killings of of Muslims and so on, or the recent case of the person who circulated a video of his murder, murdering a, a person on the street. So what I'm trying to think more closely about in this new book is the relationship between these digital technologies and rage, how they incite rage, how they enable rage and what companies are doing to prevent the kinds of rage that they incite. So I'm trying to look at different case studies to illuminate that.
0: That sounds really exciting. I can't uh, wait to read it. In fact, I'm immediately thinking of how Facebook is much more productive, I mean, proactive, sorry, about shutting down Kashmiri activists profiles, then they are, you know, shutting down sort of white nationalists at Charlottesville, for example. So there seems to be a discrepancy there that yeah. Right.
1: Or how do they even track the circulation of these videos on WhatsApp and what, you know, part of it is a technical, yeah, the retweets, part of it is the community standards problem. Um, and I, I'd like to hear a little bit more about why they're so bad at shutting down certain things and, and could they, they shut down other things right away. I think it has to do actually with state backed regimes um, ultimately but the other part is the technical problem of of catching you know these viral videos that that are moving faster it seems than than the companies themselves can control
0: that's really exciting and all the best for this new work thank you yeah it'll be a while Slow but steady. Slow but steady, exactly. Thank you so much, Professor Sarita Amrute, for joining us on the South Asian Studies channel. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. We hope to be back with another episode shortly after the holidays. Thank you. Thank you,
1: Madhuri. It was a pleasure. It was wonderful talking to you.
0: Thank you.